Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. All right, so this is the part in our morning where I am going to ask you to use your imagination. You ready? We're going to stretch our imaginations this morning, so whatever you have to do to be able to imagine, well, you know, close your eyes, something, we promise a safe place to close your eyes, you can do that. Uh, so imagine with me, if you will, ready? Okay. Imagine with me, if you will, uh, that you live in the most powerful country in the world. Okay? Imagine that you live in the most powerful country in the world, and your country is sharply divided between those who want to support the political leaders and those who don't. We stretching this far so far? Okay, we're doing okay? Stretch, okay. Just, I, I know it can be a stretch, but we can do this. We can do this together, okay. So um, imagine then that in this most powerful country in the world that's already divided, uh, there's a lot of uh, racial tension and that racial tension leads to violence in the streets and seemingly endless debates over the merits of each side. Okay, now imagine that you are a Christian in the most powerful country in the world that is sharply divided politically, sharply divided racially, and that even in the church, the church is divided, not along theological lines, but along lines of race and politics and votes. So far, so good. If you can stretch your imagination that far, you have some idea of what it feels like to be a Christian in Rome in about 57 AD, give or take. Okay? And it is to us, in our imaginings here, to the church in Rome, that the Apostle Paul writes us a letter. Now, we don't know Paul personally, most of us. A few of us have had the chance to meet him, but, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But he's never actually come through Rome. He's famous. We've heard about him. He's planted churches all over the empire and even beyond the empire a little bit. Uh, we've also heard some weird things about his past, like he says he's appointed by Jesus, but he never actually met Jesus, and he actually used to kill Christians, but now he says he's one of them, and we're not quite sure about all of that, and, but, you know, heard lots of things, mostly good. And Paul wants to visit, and he says so in this letter to us, that he's hoping to visit us, he's hoping to come through. And so before he comes, he, he wants to write us this letter to validate his ministry some and kind of clear up some of the rumors we might have heard and to speak into the division that we're experiencing. So the Christian community, the, the church in Rome, started, as most churches in the early Jesus movement did, started as a combination of Jewish people and Gentiles, which is just the Jewish word for people who aren't Jewish, okay? So it was, it was Jewish people and citizens of Rome coming together to be one church. And we can surmise, based on 
lots of other evidence that uh, like every other church just about where this was true, that Jews and Gentiles were coming together, there was some tension there between the Jewish heritage and the Roman heritage. Uh, specifically, the Jews saying, hey, look, Jesus was a Jew. If you're going to follow him, you have to follow all of the Jewish laws will teach you. And, and there was then tension around this question of, okay, but how many of the Jewish laws do we have to follow? Like there's the eating ones. Uh, in a male-dominated society, that circumcision rule was a little iffy for some people. They weren't sure they wanted to follow that one. And, and they're saying, well, look, what the evangelist told us, what you told us before we entered into your church was that there was freedom in Christ. And now you're trying to tell us there's all these, these rules we have to follow. Like, which is it? And so this, this tension was there, but, but they were bound together. We, we were bound together by our commitment to Christ. And, and it was all kind of new and exciting. And we're trying to follow Jesus together and create this community of people that, that follows him together. Well, about 10 years ago, in the late 40s AD, all of the Jewish people were sent out of Rome, Christians and non-Christians. And our little community that had been a mix of Jews and Romans was suddenly just Romans. Now, uh, stepping out of our little imaginations for just a second, bring our time machine back to 2022. We don't actually know for sure why all of the Jews were kicked out. We're very sure it happened. Multiple Roman historians say that it happened, and it even shows up in Scripture, and we'll look at that in just a second. But we do have a pretty good idea based mostly on the way one Roman historian described this event. He writes, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, Emperor Claudius expelled them from Rome. Now, who does Christus sound like? Anybody? Christ. Christ. And... and we know from other New Testament letters in, in uh, early churches that one of the things that would happen when uh, people started following Jesus is that, well, a couple of things would happen. One, as soon as things started to go sideways for those who weren't following Jesus, they blamed the Jesus followers for not following the God or gods that they're supposed to. So whether that's the culture in, say, Ephesus going, whoa, you're messing everything up for us. Things started to go badly. That's because you're not worshiping the right gods. And so they would persecute the Christians for that. But it also happened within Judaism that as Jewish people would be the, the rebels who would follow Jesus and not uh, they thought, worship Yahweh as they're supposed to, the other Jews would get upset and there would be conflict and significant conflict, sometimes violent conflict between the Jews, the Messianic Jews, the Jews who followed Jesus, who followed the way, and the Jews who are trying to do things the right way, who are trying to follow the traditions and they'd, they'd get into these conflicts with each other. So it seems entirely plausible, if not likely, that in Rome, as some Jews 
I mean, the Jewish community was already the minority in Rome, right? It's it's already kind of an us against the world thing. And now some of them are splitting off from that to follow this Jesus guy and the people who follow him and they're creating a new community. And, you know, what happened to us? We're all supposed to be Jewish in this together. And, And it led to some conflict and apparently some violent riotous conflict in the streets. And Claudius basically said, look, I don't like you guys very much when you're quiet and obedient. And right now you're neither of those things. So go away, shoo, be off with you. And they are all sent out from Rome. And we read about this event in scripture as well as part of Paul's travels in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, we read about Paul traveling from one city to another in Greece, but he runs into Roman Christians. Acts chapter 18, verse one. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. And actually, if we were gonna go to the end of uh, the letter of Romans, we would see Paul uh, asked them to greet uh, Aquila and Priscilla because they have come back to Rome. So back to the late 50s uh, AD in, in Rome. So that expelling of the Jews was now about 10 years ago. About five years ago, Emperor Claudius died. And when he did, the Jewish people, including the Jesus following Jewish people, started to trickle back into town. Now, I don't know what those Messianic Jews expected. I have no idea. I can't imagine they expected much of a warm greeting from society or from the government. But I don't, I wonder what they thought was going to happen when they came back into the church. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of the Gentiles, the Roman citizens who were in this Roman church and had stayed in that Roman church the whole time. So they had joined into this church movement and there was some tension about what laws they were supposed to follow or not. But again, we're all sort of on this ride together, following Jesus together, creating community. And our desire to follow Jesus kind of held us all together. And then our government leaders told us, hey, those Jews, they're the bad guys. They're the enemy. Out they get. You need to kick them out, send them out. Now, I don't know if, if we as the Roman citizens in the church helped kick them out or just helped them pack and told them we loved them. I don't know. But all of the Jewish people are gone. And suddenly, so is all of that tension. And the Romans, the Christian Romans discovered the joy of no tension. And it appears they did not welcome back the Jews with open arms. Five years or so of not having those tensions. And they seem to decide that church is a lot easier if I'm just surrounded by people who already agree with me. Can you imagine? And so Paul writes into this tension where we're now in the late 50s 
AD, and our church is mired in debates between those with Roman heritage and those with Jewish heritage. The Romans saying, look, we're citizens here. We have votes. We have some power. We can actually affect change. We can do something with the political structures here, and we can make stuff happen. Besides, we've been here the last five years. You haven't been. You should do things our way because we know how to impact the community here. And those with Jewish heritage saying, look, we're God's chosen people. We've been following this God guy for a lot of generations, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. We know how this works. We know the rules that God put in place for his followers. We know what a life following God is supposed to look like. You should do things our way because we know the way it's supposed to be done. And so Paul writes his letter to us. And he spends time first leveling the playing field, where he says, actually, all of us, all of us are sinners saved by grace. He says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in need of Jesus. And then he does spend some time talking specifically to the Jewish people about the nation of Israel talking about Israel's history. and says, yes, you are God's chosen people. Can we talk about the history of that and how well that has gone? Because it doesn't take too far into scripture to go, wow, that didn't get off to a great start, did it? And that's pretty much how the rest of that story continues through the Old Testament. The people who know they're God's chosen people continually turning their back on God and then turning back in repentance and turning away and turning back. And he says, look, Remember, yes, you are children of Abraham. You are descended from the very beginning of this movement God has put in place. But remember that God blessed Abraham to be a blessing to others so that all nations would come to know him. And Israel would continually turn their back on him. And instead of just squishing Israel and starting over, instead of collapsing the whole thing, God has blown it up and expanded it. And he has, through Jesus, made salvation available to all people. And this is the good news. He said, we're not... We're not to be identified by what divides us, but we're to be identified with Christ. We are to be identified as the family of Jesus. Our our primary identity is in this Messiah who died to save us all, who loves every single one of us. And let me tell you, there is nothing, he says, that can separate us from the love of Jesus. No heritage, no actions, no division. And then he turns toward the church and to how Christians should handle themselves. And so in in what is now Romans chapter 12, he starts by saying, you, we all should give our whole bodies to God. We should give all of ourselves to God which would be different than how the Romans used to worship, where they gave other people's bodies as worship to God, either through sacrifice or through that gladiator stuff that was going on or just through temple prostitution. They used other people's bodies as part of their worship for God. He said, no, 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 you give all of yourself in worship to God. And it'd be different than what the Jewish people were trying to proclaim too. So, okay, circumcision, great. 
This isn't about giving one piece of your body to God. We are giving all of ourselves to God. This is we are all to give all of ourselves to God. It is an act of worship. And he says, and we all need to be transformed. We need to have a new mindset. We need to all be changed by the heart of God to better know the heart of God, all of us. And then he says this in verse three of Romans chapter 12. He says, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. So here's the question that um, I would love to have us ponder this morning. How do you measure yourself? How do you measure? So he says, we are to have an honest measurement of ourselves, an honest evaluation, which I would suggest is essentially the definition of humility, right? He, he says in verse three, and if you could go back to that here, I'm sorry, I had you put those in the wrong order. In verse three, he says, don't think you are better than you really are. Well, we think of that as humility. But I, th- I think the next sentence is maybe the best definition of how we establish humility. He says, but be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. So how do you, how do you measure yourself? Is it through what you accomplish? Through wealth? Through the status of your job? Through how much authority you have? through how your kids turn out? How do you measure yourself? Now, I would argue that the thread that runs through all of those things I just listed, and you probably can come up with more, and I I hope you take the time to, how do you measure yourself? I think the thread that runs through all of those things is comparison. Because it's not just how wealthy are you, It's how wealthy are you compared to the person next to you? Or how well do you do with so little? How much money can you save? How good of a deal can you get? How good are your kids compared to your cousin's kids? How much authority do you have compared to somebody else? There's there's all this comparison that runs through all of it. How do you measure yourself? maybe even comparison to make ourselves feel better, right? Well, at least I'm not that person. (laughs) Another translation of verse three, um, and I think maybe a more accurate one, where it says, be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves 
by the faith God has given us. Another translation would be to say, measuring ourselves by the standard of our faith, by the standard of our faith. Now in Christianity, that's not a what, that's a who. Who is the standard of our faith? Jesus. Jesus is the standard of our faith. So we measure ourselves next to Jesus. That's our comparison. Well, how do I stack up with Jesus? And, and we discover, all of us, not very well. Not very well, right? Which is Paul's point. Again, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of the standard of Christ. That is a thing that we all have in common. Now, many Christians and a lot of Christian rhetoric stops there, where you go, well, compared to Jesus, I'm just scum. And so I should think of myself as such. I should think of myself as disgusting and shameful because next to Jesus, I'm nothing. But how does the standard of our faith measure you? When Jesus looks at you, how does Jesus measure you? With his grace. With his grace. We need to not only look at Jesus, but we need to look Jesus in the eyes. And look, if when you close your eyes and you picture the face of Jesus and you look in his eyes looking at you, and what you see is a Jesus who's condemning you, who's ashamed of you, who's disappointed in you, the Jesus that you're looking at is a Jesus some preacher made up. Because that is not the Jesus of scripture. Paul told us in this letter, in chapter eight, verse one. So now, he says, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Jesus sees you not by your shame, but by his grace. Jesus sees you not defined by your shame, but he sees you as valuable and lovable and forgivable. He sees you as valued and loved. So I think to talk about an honest evaluation of ourselves, we do need to talk about what an honest evaluation is not because I think this is how we so frequently evaluate ourselves and we think we're being really honest. An honest evaluation of yourself means not measuring yourself by comparison to others or by your shame. It means not evaluating yourself by comparison to others or by your shame. I wanna define shame really quick just so we're all on the same page. I'm gonna steal a definition from Jay Stringer who writes that shame is the painful experience that something you have done or failed to do has made you unwanted or unworthy of belonging. One more time. Shame is the painful experience that something you have done or failed to do 
has made you unwanted or unworthy of belonging. That's shame. The belief that what you've done or haven't done makes you somehow unworthy of being loved or unworthy of belonging. In a fiction book I just finished reading, one of the characters tries to keep some distance from his friends. He cares about them, but he's not going to get too close because he's just sure that if they really knew his secrets, if they really knew what he was all about, that they would hate him because he's ashamed of himself. So certainly they would be too. As the book is written, there comes a point where in order to save his friends, he has to sort of telepathically share all of who he is with everybody around him, enemy and friend alike. And when the scene is all over and he has saved the day and rescued his friends, he wakes up to discover that his friends don't hate him, that they actually have more respect and love for him than ever. Not just because he saved them, but because they know who he really is. People who go through addiction recovery or have been through addiction recovery know this situation. There's a reason why, whether it's AA or Seven Pillars or anything of that genre, pure desire, they don't just hand you a book and say, hey, read this and get better. We gather people in community because you find out that you can share your shame. You can tell people about the broken mess inside of you and find out that you are accepted and loved anyway. It's kind of the secret sauce. And that can be true for you. Addiction group or not, you can share those dark places with somebody. And you can find out that you are loved by Jesus and by others. I can't promise it's going to feel good. I can't promise it's going to look the way you want it to. But you can share those things and find out that you are valuable and loved. We, as a church, have to be a place, have to be a place where people can share their dark history and their dark present and be loved. Because as Paul writes for us in Romans 12. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. We all belong to each other. See, comparison and shame are a nasty combination of things. Because either our shame drives us to compare ourselves to others and find others that we're better than as a reflex and reaction to our shame to go, no, no, see, this doesn't define me because I can prove I'm better than you. Or shame and comparison pile up together 
to make us look around and go, oh, I don't belong here. Oh, I'm not like them. I, I don't know how many people are out there in the world around us, in your world around you, who go, oh, no, I can never be one of those church people. I just couldn't do it. I'm not like them. I've messed up too much. Now, for sure, there are also people looking at the church going, well, I couldn't be part of that. Do you know how much of a mess those people are? But also the people going, well, no, I can't belong there. Meanwhile, the church people are looking around at each other going, oh, boy, I don't know if I belong here. I don't know if, if people really knew the stuff that goes through my heart and mind during the week. I don't know that they'd want me here. Plus my faith, my prayers, my actions, they're not as good as that person. My gifts aren't as important as that person's. I don't know that I belong here. Or our comparison makes us think, well, I'm so much better than that person because <laughs> I know the truth. I make the right decisions and they don't. I vote correctly and they don't. And look, whether we live in Rome in the late 50s AD or we live in the United States in the 2020s, we live in a world where the powers that be want to make sure that we have enemies where the powers that be benefit from some us versus them language. Because us versus them allows the powers at be to say, hey, hey, I'm with you. Like, I know you don't have any power, but I do. And I see things the way you do. And so if you stick with me, if you allow me to continue to have power, I will take care of us. And in the 2020s, <laughs> The same thing applies to ratings. <laughs> Boy, I know you don't have a platform, but I do. So just stick with me, keep tuning in. And I'll make sure I tell you all about that enemy of yours. And I'll tell you how right us is. Here's the truth about Christ's church. And because it's the truth about Christ's church, it needs to be true of us. <laughs> you belong here, and so do they. You belong here, and so do they. We can't succumb to this us versus them language because our identity is in Christ, not in our labels. None of us measure up to Christ, but all of us are loved and valued by God. As humans, we really like the us versus them language because us versus them allows us to feel like we belong to us, <laughs> that we belong to this collective we, and to believe that we're in a group of people who all agrees with me, <laughs> who all believes like I do. Now, that's never true, <laughs> but we like to believe it is. 
And so we'll slap on a name tag like Republican or Democrat. And other people around us will slap on that name tag and we'll go, oh, look at us. Look at us. I'm so glad we all believe the same things. And then somebody will go, yeah, like I believe this on this issue. And we go, wait, that's not what I believe about that issue, but you have the same name tag as me. How's that work? And then we start to go, wait, 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 maybe I'm wrong. Nope, nope, that cannot be it, which must mean they're wrong. Hey guys, you won't believe what this person thinks. And they think they're part of us. Isn't that crazy? No, no, kick them out. They're wrong. And we go back to feeling like our name tag helps give us the identity that says everybody around me with this name tag agrees with me. And we keep driving at whatever religion we can find, even if we call it politics, that helps me be in a space where everybody agrees with me. And Paul says, no, 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 (laughs) no. You don't belong to Roman or Jew. You don't belong to those name tags. You belong to Christ. So you belong to Jesus and to each other, Roman or Jew. And if you're gonna do that, if you're gonna belong to each other, measuring up to the standard of Christ, you're going to have to honestly evaluate yourself. You're gonna have to evaluate yourself correctly which as I mentioned earlier, is a great definition of humility. Humility is not just beat myself up and be ashamed of myself. Humility really is an honest evaluation of yourself. And unity is driven by humility. Every time. And we belong to each other. We are being called into a unity, to a unity of belonging to Jesus and to one another. And unity is driven by humility, by understanding that I may not have it all right. (laughs) And you really probably don't agree with me on everything, but we belong to Jesus together. And because of my honest evaluation of myself and because of your honest evaluation of yourself, we can have the humility to make that happen. Belonging to the body of Christ. Belonging to the body of Christ means evaluating yourself and others by the grace of Christ. Belonging to the body of Christ means evaluating yourself and others by the grace of Christ. Not by comparisons, not by labels, not by shame, by the grace that Christ gives to us. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And there is no permission to love in us versus them categories. Next week, we're gonna talk about how we use what God has given us to love one another. But for this week, we are all sinners saved by the grace of God. And Jesus lived and died and rose again so that we would all know that we are loved and valued and forgivable by God, that we can belong to him together. Now, if you're not sure, 
if you belong to Jesus. But being loved and valued and forgiven sounds really good. Paul also wrote in this letter that anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is who he says he is, that he can have rule and reign and power in my life. Anyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes that God raised him from the dead belongs to Jesus. And if you've never confessed that before, if you would like to confess it again today, it is really that simple. Jesus is Lord. And he lived and he died so that we would be forgiven and God raised him from the dead so that we would have eternal life. So as we give ourselves to God today, as we belong to Jesus and to each other, let me pray for us. Father God, we do give all of ourselves to you. Would you give us the wisdom to honestly evaluate ourselves? Would you give us the courage to honestly evaluate ourselves? And would you give us the grace to see ourselves and to see others as you do? Father, for any of us who are turning to you and saying, I wanna belong to you. I believe that you are the God of the universe. I believe that Jesus died for my forgiveness, sacrificed himself out of love for me and for us. I believe you raised him from the dead. Father, would you give us a sense of your grace? Would you give us a sense of your hope and peace? Would you wrap us in so that we know that we belong to you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.